0: we mm-hmm. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 95 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we're still on our little uh, marathon of the Dawn of X Wave 2 books. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Hellions number 3 today. This one, like, uh, well, pretty much everything we've talked about of late, has an October 2020 cover date. The story is called Nothing People, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, we got a few editors here. We got Bisa, Amaro, White, Basso, and Sabalski. So, uh, our continuity's probably gonna be very tight in this one. Uh, cover price, $3.99, and went on sale August 26th of 2020. Now, we open, uh, with one of those quote pages that I love oh so much. Um, now... For a dude who's not even part of this series, Nightcrawler sure is approached for comment an awful lot. Uh, this is, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, the quote page trope in the Dawn of X-Books, it is a blank page with a couple lines of text on it. And that's it. Spending a whole page on that. I'd break down, you know, the $3.99 price to tell you how much we're paying for this page, but uh, that'll only get me annoyed, so I won't. We hop over to comics, and we get the quick and dirty and uh, quite a creative retelling of Madeline Pryor's Life and Times. You know, she was a pilot, who married Scott Summers and got pregnant with Cable. Then Gene returns circa X-Factor number one, which rendered Maddie into, quote, a nothing person in a nowhere place. Then, you know, Goblin Queen revelation, all that good stuff. We turn to Alex, who, if you remember, had his mouth sealed shut by Goblin-y hoodoo last issue. Well, here, he picks up a shard of glass and, uh, uh... cuts his mouth open. Um, I'm really glad that the art here is more of a cartoony bent, because even though this is particularly gruesome, it could have been very, 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 very bad if this was a more realistic style. Alex, with his mouth now open and bleeding, starts speaking his truth. You see, he was in love with Maddie, but she always she was always stuck on Scott, And he's sick to hell of it. This uh, really seems to turn Ms. Pryor on, and so they share a rather messy, open, and bloody-mouthed kiss. Hmm. Double-page spread of credits, then our roll call. It's a big one. Havoc, The maker, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Madeline Pryor, Arclight, Riptide, Harpoon, Blockbuster, and Scrambler. Back to comics, and back to our cliffhanger. Psylocke and Wild Child are going at it. Now, even wounded, Quanan is able to plunge her psychic blade through Wild Child's noggin. You know the old through the chin, up through the top of the top of the head thing. Unfortunately, this doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. It only makes a it only makes a Wild Child even more basic and primal. Back to Havoc and Maddie. Alex, he seems to be under Madeline's spell here. Uh, we see Scalp Hunter hung by his ankles in the background, and he's kind of making a racket. Alex suggests that uh, maybe Madeline just let the Marauders eat Grey Crow to shut him up. Maddie says she's saving him for herself, and because uh, the Marauders, they have to work for their own food. Which takes us over to that scene of the uh, those same Marauders trying to crack open Nanny and the Orphan Maker. We learn that these Marauders will always be hungry, because it's something that Maddie both cursed and gifted them with, uh, just the never-being-satiated feeling. Uh, to prove her point, she orders Arclight to chop o- off and dine on her own hand. That's uh, Arclight's own hand, and uh, she does. Maddie comments that it's as though she, Maddie, doesn't even exist unless she's causing pain. And so, she causes pain in order to prove she exists. It's a pretty deep and, and thought-provoking statement she made here. Um, and she kind of said it in passing, but I feel like it's a very, very heavy a uh, line of thought but we'll dig into that a little bit later on. Madeline then decides to let Arclight go ahead and just eat scalpunther and she and Alex walk away. We shift back over to Psylocke versus Wildchild and they spend several mostly wordless pages fighting until Quanon realizes she's going to have she's going to have to act just as primal as Wildchild does and so she snaps his neck. This settles Kyle down and somehow doesn't kill nor paralyze him. Um, I'm guessing we missed the chapter of Fallen Angels where we learn that Quinan could non-lethally break necks. From here, an info page. And it's a missive from a mutant regarding trepidation over entrusting the Hellions to Mr. Sinister and Quinan. Not sure who's writing it. Maybe it's Beast? I mean, maybe it's Nightcrawler. He's been, he's been giving his two cents in the uh, quote pages here. Maybe it's him. Whatever the case... The letter writer here is insistent that they keep an eye on Psylocke, also keeping in mind that this isn't Betsy Braddock, but a woman who was raised by a mystical ninja murder cult. Fair enough, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Back to Maddie and Alex. Maddie asks why the X-Men have built a home for all mutants, except for her, which is a valid question. You see, her plan here is to flood the Cracoan gateways with marauders and just overrun the island, killing everybody and anybody who gets in their way. Sort of like an all-new mutant massacre, and makes me wonder if they need directions to Rio Verde. You know, that's their... Uh, yeah, never mind. Uh, now, she will do this in order to prove to everyone that she did and does exist, and I'm liking this angle quite a lot. Uh, she next says that she will throw Alex's own severed head to the feet of Cyclops, to which Alex is like, Yeah, sure, that sounds great. So I guess he's fully under her control at this point. At least, I hope he is, and uh, this isn't some sort of like weird revenge fetish he's got going on. We jump over to the Legacy Marauders, who are preparing to feast on some Hellions. They stab into Orphan Maker, who spews like a, a sort of like green burning acid from his armor. Then Arclight gets to slicing and dicing on Grey Crow. And we wrap up the issue with Psylocke and a now docile wild child getting ready to enter the fray. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we wrap up our Dawn of X, Wave 2, Number 2s with X-Factor, Number 2. Looking forward to that one quite a bit here, but let's talk about Hellions. Now, you get the feeling that they're, they're filling time here a little bit, right? Um, this is... Issue three. I don't know how long this uh, this arc goes before we jump to X of Tens, but this felt like we needed to we needed to fill some space. Still, a very strong issue and a surprisingly deep one at that. We got us an elephant in the room here, and uh, I think that it uh, or she was portrayed really well here. I'm quite taken with the idea that Madeline Pryor is acting out of pain. She's lashing out as she feels she's been forgotten She's a nowhere person, right? A non-entity And considering, well, basically her entire existence since Inferno We can kind of see why she might feel that way Now, I don't want to go too deep Into my own philosophy or methodology Regarding existentialism Because I don't know that I'm actually able to put into words How I feel about it I'm not as erudite as I would like to be But I really dig this idea that Maddie only feels that she exists through the pain she inflicts. Because to her, that's her proof, right? To herself and to those around her that she was here. It's sad. It's tragic, right? Uh, You look at a character like Madeline Pryor, you look into her past and her earliest appearances, which Wells did a fine job incorporating into our opening pages, and when you stop and think about it, she truly is a tragic character really very sad. I mean, she never asked for this life, right? And yet, it's the one she wound up getting. Now, if we were to anthropomorphize a comic book character and think about what they think is their own legacy, it's it's a pointless exercise, but it's also an interesting one. Um, Think about how many characters are out there who are nothing more than footnotes. That's if they even warrant a footnote. Heck, you know, they might even be best remembered as a wizard magazine more to the month. Or a character some idiot got way too wrapped up in over at Chris's On Infinite Earths, or, or, or anywhere online, maybe. It's interesting to think about, and it's also quite relatable. Um, perhaps even a little too relatable in, in this case. Um, I mean, if you listen to this show in real time, you'll know that we're fresh into a new year, right? And uh, with a new year comes the invitation to reflect, You know, um, you think about the past a bit more this time of year, because it's a new start, so everything's really the past. More so than usual. At least I think that way. You may think about things like legacy. Or maybe just I do. And maybe, if you let your mind wander far enough from its rational state, you'll start thinking about the impact you've had on others. if, If any at all. Like, what mark have you left? For me, that's something I struggle with. I struggle with it a lot, which is probably one of the reasons why I pump out content with such diligence. Um, I don't know that I'm all that memorable for my wit or my insight, so I focus on something I can control in my prolificity, right? That's something I can control even without talent. (laughs) You know, I'm always there. I'm in your face. Perhaps just to prove to myself and those around me that I do and did, in fact, exist. And like I said, it's a deep subject, right? It's probably too deep for a show like this and uh, for a guy like me. But it resonated with me because, I mean, if you don't leave a mark, did you exist? You know, it's... uh, It's something weird to think about. Something weird to think about. Another thing I wanted to comment on from this issue is from our info page. Now, there's a line in there that I think touches on some things that are worth exploring. The fact that the X-Men need to realize that this Psylocke is not Betsy Braddock. There's something to that, and it's just uh, just like Maddie's quandary. It's very relatable. First, I mean little peek behind the curtain, you don't know how many times in my notes I referred to Psylocke as, quote, Betsy. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's habit, right? Second, it's an interesting take on the concept of transference. Now, transference in the quick, dirty, and oversimplified, um, it's where you assign certain attributes to someone because they remind you of someone else. So here, assigning certain attributes to Quan'an Simply because she reminds us of Betsy Braddock Someone we're far more familiar with And far more trusting of, right? But this isn't Betsy And in fact, she's little more than a stranger to our heroes And yet, she's been entrusted as being a field leader For a team of, I mean, unhinged and quote Inconvenient characters, right? It's interesting, and I hope that they play a little bit more with this concept I want the Cyclopses and the Quiet Councilses to treat her as though they would Betsy, simply because of how human a behavior that that is. I want to see Quanon have to deal with that, and not in the, oh, we both like butterflies sort of way. I want to see it on a deeper level here. Does Quanon take it in stride? Does she allow herself to be treated as a known and trusted entity for what it may afford her? Or will she keep reminding those around her That she's not the same woman That they're treating her as I think this could lead to some very interesting scenes If they play their cards right And don't just go Oh, we both like butterflies, I hate that You know, I I want it to be a little deeper than that I want it to be more human And I'm I'm hopeful that it will Now, other than those two points Like I said, it was a fight scene (laughs) Right? It was a, a, a time fill in a way Um, an attempted feeding frenzy for the Marauders Fair enough, you know, given the lead-up, it is what it is But this book remains among my higher recommendations for the line Uh, the art here was solid The story was solid And, uh, for a concept that I didn't think would work all that well Hellions has been a pleasant surprise You know, like all the Wave 2 books Except Wolverine uh, no, that's uh, pretty much all I got to say about Hellions number three here. Let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out. We'll start with Damien, who's discussing X Men number 10. He says, I think the reason the drinking humor surrounding Petra and Sway doesn't work is because the story says the three of them are drinking to forget their trauma. Alcoholism isn't funny. I didn't enjoy the scene, but at least when Magneto was drunk, he was having fun. There was a potential humor in a normally buttoned-up person letting loose during a, due to drinking, but I reiterate alcoholism isn't funny. And that's a great point. That's a really good point, because there can be comedy in the in the whole, you know, like somebody spiked the punch at the office Christmas party scene, right? Like the manager's drinking the uh, the spiked punch and didn't realize it. Seeing someone who's usually uptight in a looser frame of mind can be amusing, right? Simply due to the juxtaposition of the situation. But I totally agree. Self-medicating ain't funny. I'm not sure why it's being treated that way, though. Or maybe I'm just reading too much into their commentary. Like, am I supposed to think that they hate that they have to drink in order to just get by? Or do I keep rolling my eyes at the fact that they're obsessed with blending margaritas like they're on some like lame sitcom? I mean, I don't, it's, it's a weird uh, mixed message that we're getting here It's like, it's not like, oh man, we got a drink to forget It's woohoo, we have to drink to forget I, I don't know uh, Damien continues I do wonder why the three retconned amigos remember the trauma of their deaths it Seems a weird thing for Xavier to back up in Cerebro I've never read Deadly Genesis Was the professor with them when they died? Or was he back in the mansion like in Giant Size Number 1? It's a very good question It's been a long, long while since I read Deadly Genesis, but I want to say Xavier was at the mansion. That said, I've actually been asked to sit in on a Deadly Genesis discussion at some point in the next couple months, so I'll eventually have an actual answer for that question. But yes, the trauma is a very interesting thing to have backed up into Cerebro, which it makes me ask some questions that I don't know that we're supposed to be asking. Like, how does this work? Like, when did Xavier get backups for these characters? Even if the backup system was in place during Deadly Genesis, at the very latest that he would have been able to get backups would have been before they went to Krakoa and died, right? It just seems really nebulous. Uh, is it just the fact that they know they died? Is that what's causing them to the drink? I could see that, in, and that could be a very interesting angle should they, should they choose to go that way. Because even if you don't know how you died, just the knowledge that you did, yeah, that's that's some heavy stuff. I don't know if that's what we're expected to read into this, or if this is just a little sloppier than uh, than it should be. Uh, Damien continues. Anyway, I hated this story. Characters I dislike, behaving in a way I abhor, does not make for a good story. Lionel U draws great moon vistas, though. That's true, uh, Lionel Yu is actually seemed to be a, a good fit here. But yeah, the story sucked. This X-Men volume, for the most part, sucks. And it's actually starting to give me that uh, Fallen Angels agita, you know, where I'm dreading having to read it. It's every time I think about stopping this show, it's after I read an issue of X-Men for the, the past three, eight, nine, and ten. It makes me realize that this, uh, this little job I've given myself is not fun all the time. <laughs> when I'm reading some of these things that I really would rather not. Uh, Damien wraps up with, after that, I'm desperately in need of some Merry X-Lapsed. I love a Christmas story, and I'm looking forward to hearing your take. And Thank you. I, I know you did listen to the uh, Merry X-Lapsed episodes. I had a lot of fun doing those. Uh, for folks who are unaware, I took Christmas week, uh, five five days before Christmas, uh, leading up to Christmas, and just took a look at various X-Men x Miss stories, and I had a really good time with it. Um, it was a nice change of pace, and it also... It gave me an excuse to read some uh, some stories I haven't read in a long time. So, you know me; I, I got everything has to be a multitasker. So I can't just read something for the for the fun of it. I have to actually make it into something else. So, it afforded me an opportunity to read some real fun stories. Well, four of them were fun. One of them was not, but uh, but I, I appreciate that. And if anybody is ever in need of some uh, Christmas cheer, you can you can dig those episodes up and uh, and have a listen. It's also A slightly different intro music for those, so enjoy that as well. But thank you so much, Damien. Next, Jesse DeJong talking about X Force number 11. He says, I've just finished the episode on X Force 11, and I have just a few opinions on the book. I'm not sure how much I like Multiple Man as a workforce. We have seen him on both an island for miracle drugs, in the Savage Land farming, and as an army in Empire. I miss the days where Jamie and his dupes were each living beings who had choices, not mindless drones. Are there not hundreds of thousands of mutants on Krakoa? Shouldn't they, be more, shouldn't they be more hands-on with the running of the only export from the island? Are they really just there to party 24-7, even during funerals? What kind of life is that? Cultures have fallen countless times in the past because the populace grew lazy and self-centered. Using Jamie as a workforce is not only lazy for the story, but it also shows that the creative team is being lazy as well. Great points, great points, and I do, I do wonder if the decadence of Krakoa will be addressed, and may ultimately be the undoing of the mutant society. Um, I suppose if Apocalypse starts taking like fiddling lessons while Mystique plays with matches, we, we may start to worry. Um, and you're right, the Jamie workforce seems lazy. On many levels. Um, it does illustrate a, uh, a level of complacency on Krakoa, which may just be the point. But from creative, it, it's kind of reductionist, right? It, it kind of ignores all the growth that Jamie had exhibited during the past couple of decades of storytelling. And you're right. I mean, the dupes used to actually be, like, they used to be goal-oriented, it was either early in X Force Volume Three or the Madrox series that preceded it, but I remember Jamie was sending his dupes out to gain knowledge. Right? It was very creative use of the character. Like you'd have one who would uh, would like join a monastery, and he would like be sitting on a mountain just to get the knowledge of doing it. One would go to school for a certain discipline just to get the knowledge to do it. It's, you know, it's a really, really cool use And it, and it's, like, such an enviable sort of power It's, like, not only is it a cool power to have in general But just the, that level of, like, oh, man Think of all the stuff I could get done, you know And uh, it's a really cool use And it makes it all the sadder and lazier To just see, you know, field upon field of Jamie workers It feels like something that we'd see, like, maybe in another dimension Like, if we were to revisit the Age of Apocalypse for the 8900th time, maybe we'd see a field full of Jamie clones, Jamie dupes, doing some work. I mean, just to have a Jamie presence in the story, but in the real Marvel Universe, I I really don't care for it. Jesse continues, uh, The Russian nesting assassins was a cool reveal. I wondered how small they would get and how you could stop them from emerging. Maybe by freezing them? I'm sure we'll find out before they become microscopic. And yeah, this was a neat reveal, and I hope they do more with it. Because I know, I mean, for better or for worse, we're probably going to be dealing with the Russians as our big beds for a little while. So it's neat to see them playing with a take on the resurrection protocols themselves. It evens the playing field a little bit, and I suppose that's better than not. You know, it's not bad. Uh, Jesse continues... It was nice seeing the X-Men in a battle again, and not just sitting around talking. Sometimes I just want a good fight. That's true. That's true. We don't get to see them fighting all that often here. So it is cool to see, you know, just a, a nice splash page of a fight that actually leads somewhere. Jesse continues, I'm guessing that someone is a fan of South Park because Quentin is Kenny. He dies practically every issue, only to be back the next. It's become an event in itself, and maybe I should keep track of all the ways Kid Omega has died. But the number of deaths in these books got old fast, not just from Quentin. Sage is heartless, but just dismisses Rhea's death as if taking out the trash is too far. I hope that they get a story where the Five can no longer resurrect and see how casual they think of death at that time. And I think they're going to actually, they're going to have to eventually tackle a story like that, right? I mean, outside of the kiddie one, because how long can this go on? You know, countless deaths Deaths that are treated like comedy Or a simple inconvenience It's too much Um, What's worse is Outside of that I'm really enjoying X-Force It's just that You know like when you're When you're preparing to hear Like a really annoying sound Or maybe you stub your toe And there's like two or three seconds Where there's no pain yet But you know it's coming Like You stub your toe and you're like, oh, that didn't hurt, and then, oh, here it comes, here it comes. That's how I read X-Force, because there's stuff that I'm digging, but then I'm, like, kind of cringed at the same time because I'm waiting for Quentin to die. I'm waiting for someone else to die. I'm waiting for some faux, deep, philosophical garbage, um... And sometimes that'll spoil the entire experience. And it very seldom fails to do so and, and likely won't stop doing so anytime soon, unfortunately. So fingers crossed that maybe we'll get an issue or two without a wacky Quentin Choir death and uh, maybe no deaths altogether. Fingers crossed, right? And we are going into a crossover. So maybe, uh, who knows? We'll see. We'll see. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Jesse. We're going to wrap up with Andrew Franklin, who's talking about not only X-Force number 11, but also Excalibur number 11. He says, Had you liked that Colossus and Omega Red tussle? Well, maybe next issue. (laughs) To which, I would say fingers crossed, though I don't know if they're crossed because I want to see it, or I hope I don't. Uh. Andrew continues, I'm choosing to be cautiously optimistic about his inclusion in X-Force. So far, what little we've seen of Colossus I've liked but ex-authors have a bad track record with treating him terribly. The 90s was a systematic dismantling of Peter, and it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I also find it odd that Peter always ends up in the X-Force book. I wasn't reading at the time, so I'm not sure if he was on the other version of the Black Ops X-Force or what, but it seems to me me that ex-editorial has, for a long time, been disdainful of the gentle nature of Peter. That's why, so far, I've liked Percy's use of him. He seems like the Colossus, I know, but has an interesting addition of being a skeptic to the Krakoa era. I hope we don't abandon the Something's Rotten with the Resurrection story thread. After that scene with Domino and Peter before her death, I'd like to see him dig into what's going on. So the best I can say now is that I have a reason to be interested in where this book goes. And I agree, the Colossus and Domino scenes here have been probably the high points of the entire volume. It's just a shame that it that, you know, they're, they're so few and far between We've only had maybe two or three of them But they've been so good And you're right um, About Colossus's treatment I can't think of a time since I actually started reading the X-Men Where Colossus has been treated right uh, To me, you know, before I dove into the Claremont stuff I thought Colossus was just like a really cool-looking character Who was really a bore and a chore to actually read he was just so dull, uh, always moping around so- about something. Now, I came into the X-Books just after Mikhail's introduction and banishment to the Morlock Hill of Champions, or whatever the hell it was. So Peter was kvetching about that. Uh, then, just a few months later, Ilyana was the first victim of the Legacy Virus, and so Peter had to complain about that. He ultimately turns on the X-Men, joins up with the Acolytes. He'd eventually join Excalibur, where he'd mope, then he would rejoin the X-Men, where he'd mope and constantly see things that reminded him of Illyana. Like, out of the corner of his eye, all the time, he's seeing his sister. Then he'd die, and then Joss Whedon would bring him back so he could write his Peter Loves Kitty fanfic when whenever he would get off his ass long enough to actually write an issue. So, not a great track record for Peter, um... Now, the book you're thinking about, the X-Force one, uh, he would join up with either X-Force or Cable and X-Force around the time of one of the Marvel Nows. I'm not sure which one, I'm not sure which team. Uh, I do know that it was the X-Force team that incorporated a lot of yellow into their gear, whichever book it was. It wasn't great. So, you know what, could it be that this is the best Colossus I've ever seen as an active reader? Of these comics? You know, not just going back to uh, dig into the Claremont archives, but as I'm an active reader, is this the best I've seen Colossus being depicted? I mean, that's a scary thought, but could very well be. Uh, back to Andrew. Another point of interest for me was Mikael. I have a strange fondness for Mikael. I was a big fan of that first year or so of the gold team on Canny X-Men where Mikael was introduced and then killed off. I don't know what he's been up to since showing up again around Uncanny 325 and the Storm solo mini, but from what I remember of him, he never really had a consistent character anyway, other than nebulous 90s energy manipulation powers and being various states of insane. He's just one of those characters that makes me perk up a bit just to see what they're going to do with him. And Mikhail is an interesting study. Um, I do have a certain fondness for him, but I think it is bred out of how he was treated during the Age of Apocalypse. Because uh, up until that point, I, I could care less about the guy, but probably because he was part of that Morlock story, and I do hate me some Morlock stories. Um, but in the Age of Apocalypse, he was treated as this, like, super powerful wild card. You know, it was really, really intriguing. We would hear the horsemen talk of Mikhail, and it was just like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And uh, I've always had a fondness for him since then, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with him here. I know he's got the Cerebro sword now, so I'm... Assuming that uh, he'll have something to do with uh, X attends. Andrew continues. As disinterested in X-Force as I am, it's better than Excalibur. Oof, this book is a chore. I stopped reading issue 11 a few pages in and went back to issue 10 to make sense of where the story was. I'd completely forgotten that issue is all a Jamie Braddock side story until two-thirds of the way through. So I had to go back and read issue 9, and let me tell you, it was not worth all that effort. This book is just not interesting. And if not for Marvel Unlimited, there's no way I'd be reading this, which I guess is a good endorsement for Marvel Unlimited. The art is good, though. And yeah, Excalibur's weird in that with each successive issue, I always feel like we're starting off with a disadvantage. Like like I missed something, like I missed an issue, or or there was like a misprint and I'm missing the first several pages of the issue. Something. It's just very jarring In how it goes about telling its story I've had to dig I I, I mentioned it before when I read uh, I think it was number 10 I had to dig through long boxes to pull number 9 out To make sure that I covered it I had to dig through my uh, my You know, my to-be-read books And see like, oh man, did I skip one? <laughs> you know? And then I'm thinking, oh man, I probably have all my numbering mixed up I'm going to have My, my X-Labs episode numbers Are going to be all screwed up from this point on Simply because it feels so disjointed. It doesn't feel like one stream of consciousness, right? I gotta wonder if the collected editions read quite as PC as they do as individual issues. I know with the anthologies, you don't gotta worry about that, but if you're reading, you know, Excalibur by Teenie Howard, volume whatever, is it this weird in between issues? I don't know. I don't know. Andrew wraps up with. Thankfully, the Wave 2 issues are next, and hopefully we'll all have good things to say about them. So until Betsy manifests the secondary mutation to become the literal Excalibur sword, make mine X-lapsed. And you never know. Maybe she is the X of tens, or whatever that... Is Is it... you know, I have to always look. Is it X of swords or sword of X? I think it's, it, it's exoswords. okay, it's exaswords But uh, you never know, maybe we will see some uh, anthropomorphized sword action in there um, My DCBS order came in today, and there is a book yeah, There is the sword book that we'll be getting to eventually Which, uh, I tell you what, at first blush, looks like it's going to be a slog But we'll worry about that another day uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today if anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so quite easily. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Ace Comics, or you can hit me up on email at 90sXmen at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Earth.com and at You can talk to us about all sorts of stuff on Facebook at group 90X... Blah, 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 90s X-Men is our group. I tell you, I goof up on these plugs every single day. But uh, you can check out the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com but uh, that's where we'll leave it for today I want to thank you all so so much for sharing your time with me today and as always I will talk to you all again real soon see ya